I'm Hugh Sutherland, the uh, president of the St. Anne Society, uh, and I'm here today, today to introduce uh, our speaker. Uh, and uh, welcome to you all, and welcome to our speaker. Um, professor Adam Smith is the Osborne Professor uh, of uh, American Politics and History, uh, and he's uh, at University College here in, in Oxford. Uh, he comes to us from uh, UCL, professor at UCL, and before that, uh, Cambridge. Uh, and uh, he was originally uh, an undergraduate here at St. Anne's, so welcome back. Um, here to uh, give us a very, clearly very popular, uh, interesting speech on, uh, lecture on um, the crisis in American democracy, how bad is it? Um, I should say that the format, we've, this is the uh, St. Anne Society seminar. The format will be that uh, Adam will speak, uh, and then um, there'll be some time available uh, within the hour to, uh, for people to ask questions and to have a, a discussion. Uh, we'll be finishing at 3.30, um, and um, people will be able to leave at that point, but then we can continue discussion for a little while after as well. Uh, there's tea afterwards. And well, um, I suppose we uh, find that we've all rather complacently uh, assumed that our institutions are ancient, democratic, and robust. And it would seem that our ancient institutions are not particularly democratic, and our democratic institutions are not particularly robust. Uh, and that's something which is a bit of a shame. And uh, well, how bad is it? <laughs> Thank you very much indeed, and uh, uh, thank you um, to those who um, invited me, uh, and also to the to the Plumer lunch which I've just attended, which was a lovely occasion, and it's great to be back at St Anne's. Um, I have um, quite Im um, was impressed upon me that this was um, an Im an important occasion, and uh, so I've done what I I don't always do. With lectures, which I've, writ I've I've written something out, which I shall, which I shall try to um, pay some attention to. But the first line of it this morning, I was um, at home, and my middle daughter um, grabbed what I was writing as I was writing this this morning, and she read out to the rest of the family the first line of the lecture, which I'm about to read to you. And the first line of the lecture is as follows. This is a kind of meta lecture I'm doing here, you see. You notice I'm... And I said, uh, and the first line is as follows. This is what I wrote. I said, we live in an age of anxiety, which I say as a historian may well be the default setting for all human societies, but which feels to many of us to be something new. And my middle daughter said, well, you might be anxious, Daddy, but I'm not anxious about anything. Um, the... If it is the case that we live in, a, in an age of anxiety, the reasons for it uh, are many and potentially existential, beginning and possibly ending with the climate emergency. But there's something else going on too, isn't there? A loss of confidence that something we once took for granted, that Western liberal democracies were securely entrenched, may not be true. The global order is facing what some analysts have called a democratic recession. That is, for the first time since the 1980s, the advance of democracy has gone into reverse. Now, to be fair, that's a recession from a very high tide. 
because there was a long period from a long wave of liberalization beginning with the um, overthrow of Latin American dictatorships in the 1980s and accelerating with the end of the Cold War. But there's one difference today which seems to me to be quite significant, which makes the fate of liberal democratic regimes potentially more perilous than ever, which is that the United States, for the first time in its history, is no longer straightforwardly, at least, playing the democracy promotion leadership role we have come to take for granted. Now, of course, the United States hardly has an unblemished record of democracy promotion. In the 19th century, it bullied and subjugated other peoples and territories much in the same way as the European powers did. And in the Cold War, as we know, it covertly backed some brutal dictatorships. All of that is true, and much more can and has been said on that subject. And yet, rhetorically and ideologically, and to some extent substantively, if the United States stood for anything, it was freedom and democracy. Today, however, there are plenty of commentators warning that something once unthinkable may now be happening, that American democracy is collapsing. Uh, the Economist magazine's intelligence unit in its annual audit of the state of democratic regimes around the world has reclassified the United States as a flawed democracy, which makes it on their scale less democratic than Uruguay, Chile, and even, bizarrely, the United Kingdom. <laughs> Why is this happening? Well, one answer, the obvious Insufficient answer is just a syllable long. <laughs> Trump. There is, of course, no precedent for having a president with such open admiration for authoritarian leadership. But this isn't just about Trump. Opinion surveys before the 2016 election show a large and rising minority of US voters who display authoritarian traits. A recent research paper by political scientists Stephen Miller and Nick Davis, based on, a, on survey data from the period 2000 to 2010, found that white voters were increasingly likely to support the idea of a strongman leader. Now, in fairness, one might also say that there are signs of democratic health in the United States as well. The types of Americans long excluded from the halls of power are entering them in greater numbers than ever before. The present Congress is more gender-balanced and more racially diverse than ever before. An openly gay man is running for president, and his sexuality is barely an issue in the Democratic primaries. But the increasing inclusivity, in some respects, of American democracy over the last half century has prompted a backlash among people willing to compromise their commitment to democracy in order to preserve their status or whatever values they believe are under threat. So I'd suggest that the underlying causes of the American democratic crisis are as follows. Firstly, increasing economic inequality. Second, racial and ethnic division. Third, um, those things have driven a partisan polarization unprecedented in at least for 150 years. And fourthly, and in the background, and insufficiently acknowledged, are the ongoing consequences of the end of the Cold War. 
So I'll take each of these factors in turn. First, the implications of decreasing economic security for middle-class and working-class Americans. Well, the sociologist Martin, Seymour Martin Lipset warned 50 years ago in uh, his study of democratic failure in the early 20th century that a society divided between a large impoverished mass and a small favored elite would result either in oligarchy or in tyranny. Now, that is not yet an accurate description of the United States, but since 2000, by many measures, the United States has become a much less equal society than it was through much of the 20th century in economic terms. Um, income has risen five times as fast for the highest as for the lowest earners since 2000. And as Sean Reardon from Stanford and others have shown, the achievement gap in education between the richest and the poorest Americans is 40% higher among those born in 2001 compared to those born in 1976. In other words, by all of those measures of um, social inclusion, the United States is going at a fairly rapid rate in the wrong direction. In the United States, as in the rest of the Western world, it's no longer the case that people can expect to be wealthier than their parents. Um, one study showed that only 40% of millennials were wealthier than their parents had been at the age of 30, compared to 80% of baby boomers who were wealthier than their parents at the same age. That's an amazing drop with big consequences for people's faith in the system. All the studies of the 2016 election that I've read conclude that a deep feeling of powerlessness characterized Trump's voters. According to Yasha Monk's analysis of 2016 data from the American National Election Studies, those who voted for Trump in the Republican primaries rather than his Republican rivals were more likely than those supporting other candidates to say that they don't have any say about what the government does, that public officials don't care much what people like me think, and that most politicians care only about the interests of the rich and powerful. And it may well be that those voters were objectively correct to feel that way in comparison to previous generations. In 2014, two political scientists, Martin Gillens and Ben Page, made a, a really interesting, if not unproblematic, attempt to quantify the power of economic elites in uh, policymaking. What they did was to compare the capacity of ordinary citizens, pressure groups, and economic elites to get policy, that, identified policy, um, passed through Congress. What they concluded, perhaps unsurprisingly, was that, and this is a quote, when the preferences of economic elites and the stands of organized interest groups are controlled for, the preferences of the average American appear to have only a minuscule, near zero, statistically non-significant impact upon public policy. Now, that's pretty strong stuff for the country that's supposed to have government of, for, and by the people. The last time large numbers of white Americans felt that the system wasn't delivering from the, for them was after the 1929 crash. In the 30s, fascism was far more appealing to Americans than we often remember, as, of course, was communism. But an important difference between the 1930s and today was that back then, the political system was more capable 
of responding. Franklin Roosevelt's worked with Congress to transform the role of the United States government and its relationship with citizens. The government in the 1930s in the New Deal accrued vast new authority, took on huge new areas of responsibility, um, creating uh, jobs in the process. There is huge amounts of debate about the impact of the New Deal on the eventual economic recovery, um, which the United States experienced only really after they entered the Second World War. But it's impossible to deny whatever view you have of the merits or otherwise of the New Deal, that it was an example of a president coming into power with large majorities in Congress and being able to deliver on a set of policies that were directly intended and were seen as being directly responsive to the needs of the population at that time. The political system in the 1930s, in other words, appeared to offer a means of addressing problems. And given the circumstances of the interwar period, that in no small measure, I think, explains the survival of the American system at that critical time. Those things no longer appear to be true. Congress has been deadlocked now for a substantial period of time. The last major piece of legislation passed by Congress was the Affordable Care Act, so-called Obamacare, in 2010. Even in the brief period, the two-year period, when Republicans controlled Congress as well as the White House after the 2016 election, Congress accomplished very little other than uh, the tax cuts, which disproportionately benefited the wealthiest Americans. Most of the changes that have affected U.S. life in the last 60 or 70 years since the New Deal period have come not from elected politicians, not from Congress, not from, uh, in any direct sense, from grassroots initiatives, but from the Supreme Court. Supreme Court has ordered the desegregation of schools. It's ended the death penalty and then restored it. It struck down anti-abortion laws. It may now allow them to be restored. It's decriminalized homosexuality. It's allowed same-sex marriage. It's struck down gun control legislation. It's struck down campaign finance legislation. It's determined whether millions of people can get health insurance or can be deported for not having proper immigration status. And you may individually agree or disagree with any of these changes, but the fact is the central, absolutely central role that the court now plays in American lives has, at least in my judgment, made United States politics less transparently responsive to popular pressure. It's created, in fact, all kinds of strange distortions in the system. The rationale that... Um, evangelical Protestants leaders gave in 2016 and still give today for their support of Donald Trump, who by any measure, given the way he conducts his life and his apparent moral system, one would not have thought would be the favoured candidate of evangelical Protestants. The reason they give, of course, is because of the importance of Supreme Court picks. They needed to have um, from their perspective, a Republican, any Republican in the White House 
so long as he could be relied upon, as Donald Trump has certainly been able to be relied upon, to make the conservative um, judicial appointments that he has done. In other words, rather than debating and contesting um, incredibly divisive moral questions like abortion through the, the, um, the normal legislative political process, it has become a, um, an entirely judicial matter. And the same is true, of course, for lots of other contested areas of American life, most obviously gun control, but also other things like, like healthcare, which have become judicial questions. And then there's the question, of course, of race. Racial inequality has always driven American politics. Um, there's never been a time when race has not been central. But it's manifested itself in profoundly different ways at different periods of American history. Since the civil rights movement, the black rights movement of the 1950s and 60s, it has been possible to construct a hopeful narrative, a redemptive narrative of change in the United States. The idea is that with the end of the jure racial discrimination, with the old Jim Crow legislation overthrown, perhaps a genuinely post-racial future might lie ahead. An increasingly visible middle class of people of color, and above all, the election of Barack Obama in, two, in, in 2008, was taken by many people as evidence that America's racial divisions could now be, had now been transcended. And you see this very clearly in opinion surveys. White Americans in overwhelming numbers now dismiss the problem of racial inequality um, as being a matter of, of the individual prejudice of just a few kind of bad apples. Um, they think racism, in other words, is an individual problem. Black Americans know, feel, experience something quite different, that racism is a structural problem. And the attainment gap, the education gap, which I, just, which I mentioned earlier, which has been growing significantly uh, in the last 20 or 30 years, and I described it in class terms, but as always in the United States, class, of course, overlaps very strongly uh, with race, so the life chances of non-white Americans, especially of African Americans and uh, Hispanic Americans, are now worse by most measures. Their chances of advancement are now worse now by most measures than they were 25 or 30 years ago. And you can look as well for other indicators at the huge racial disparity in the prison population, um, and not even to get into the huge and fascinating and alarming question of the systematic disfranchisement of swathes of voters, in, especially in Republican-controlled southern states, um, through partisan redistricting, through the removal of um, polling stations from majority black districts, uh, through laws um, uh, disenfranchising people with um, felonies, all of which has meant that there are more obstacles now to um, black participation in elections than has been true since the 1970s. And since the uh, Trump administration came to power, those efforts have had the 
uh, tacit and in some one or two cases the active support of the um, Justice Department in Washington, whereas previously the Justice Department, even under Republican, administration, Republican administrations as well as under Obama, always um, took the side of um, plaintiffs who were trying to challenge those state laws. No longer, that is no longer the case. But racial politics in America today is no longer as it once was a matter of black and white. In retrospect, perhaps the most far-reaching piece of legislation passed during Lyndon Johnson's administration, you could argue, this is like an exam question, was not the, 18, was not the 1964 Civil Rights Act, but the 1965 repeal of the previous race-based restrictions on immigration. At the time... The 1965 Immigration Act, its supporters, which included people like Senator Ted Kennedy, as well as liberal Republicans from northern states, were emphatic that the repeal of the, the 1920s-era immigration legislation would not alter the demographic makeup of the United States. They were completely wrong. Um, since 1965, as we all know, and those of us who spent, especially probably those of us who spent a lot of time in the United States who come from there will know, that over the last half century, the, uh, the uh, racial and ethnic complexion of the United States population has changed in dramatic ways with a huge surge of Asian and Latin American immigration, which some white Americans, consciously or subconsciously, now think of as an existential challenge to their idea of what America is. According to most projections, the United States will be uh, majority minority, to use the phrase, will be majority non-white by 2043. And right now, it is the case that a majority of American children are non-white. How does all this affect the stability of the political order? How is it related to the crisis of American democracy, if that's what it is? Well, because historically the marker of the stability of a regime, any regime, is the acceptancy of the legitimacy of political institutions. And that, in turn, has always rested on a high degree of acceptance of who was part of the political community. Whenever there has been serious contest over that question, whose voice can be heard, the legitimacy of the system has been called into question and instability has resulted. And that, I think, is what we're now seeing in the United States. Throughout American history, when white people have faced challenges to their dominance, cultural, economic, or political, they have proved perfectly willing to abandon liberal values. White Southerners in the Jim Crow era considered themselves to be living in a democratic society hugely valued their own right to vote and their participation in the political um, system, and yet simultaneously lived, in, re lived under regimes and supported regimes that were by most measures authoritarian, illiberal, and intolerant. One quite convincing way, it seems to me, of explaining the rise of Donald Trump is that, in a sense, what used to be a feature of Southern politics, has gone national. The white majority, under threat, wants to redraw the boundaries 
of who was in the political nation. Hence the disenfranchisement that I talked about a moment ago and the clampdown uh, on undocumented migrants. In different ways, then, economic insecurity and racial polarization um, are part of the, are central to the story here. And what both have done is to feed into an extraordinarily ideological sorting of the two political parties. Partisan polarization is always the major driver identified by analysts of democratic breakdown. And it was the great fear of the founding fathers. They weren't Democrats, but they were keen to maintain a republic. Their great fear, the great fear of James Madison, was faction. Faction for Madison was not necessarily just the same as party. What distinguishes a faction from a party is the claim of the faction to speak for the whole, even though it doesn't. Um, Obviously, if a faction speaks, claims to speak for the whole, it thereby um, labels its opponents as enemies, as unpatriotic, as disloyal. Now, notwithstanding the founders' founding fathers' fastidiousness about their, their, their preoccupation with trying to create an institutional structure which, um, which guarded against um, Faction. The United States has had political parties almost from the beginning. But for most of that time, political parties were coalitions with large areas of ideological and programmatic overlap. There are some interesting but not very comforting exceptions to that generalization. So, as I'm sure most people here will, will know, will remember... In the 1960s and 70s, and even into the 1980s, there were still plenty of self-identified conservatives in the Democratic Party, especially in the South, but not only in the South. And there were plenty of liberal Republicans, especially from the Northeast, the, the, the old Northwest, the Midwest. That's no longer the case, of course. The ideological sorting of the parties into a conservative and a liberal party, using those words and using that terminology in the way that Am Americans use them, has become complete. It was complete, really, by the end of the 20th century, but the, but the position of the parties has intensified ever since. I mean, every so often you see... I mean, I saw the other day a survey which claimed that if you asked um, Republican voters who they would they would most fear their children being or most disapprove of their children being in a relationship with republican voters said transsexual people democratic voters said a republican <laughs> conflict um seems irresolvable when politics is conducted by isolated self-referential groups with such sharply polarised identities. And obviously this leads into a conversation about the rise of the internet, the social media, stuck in Facebook, Facebook echo chambers, avoiding information that challenges their preconceived narratives, people are far less willing to understand or to make the effort required to understand another's point of view. There was the Reuters Institute at Oxford 
does an annual, or maybe it's biannual anyway, it, it's it, the most recent survey I could find, which was 2018, um, survey of um, media around the world, unsurprisingly found that Americans' news consumption was the most polarized in the Western world. In other words, there was virtually no overlap between the news sources accessed by one half of the population, as it were, compared to the other. This is a big change from the 1960s. Obviously, the 1960s was also a period of great polarization and political violence, in fact, in the United States. But in the 1960s, there was Walter Cronkite. There were three um, networks, and everybody watched the network news. Um, there, were, there was a much stronger tradition of local journalism, um, which was, by its nature, um, bipartisan. These things make a profound difference to the conduct of political life. One might think rationally, if you were, I don't know, trying to, you were coming from another planet and had been asked as a kind of sort of McKinsey-style consultant to solve the problem of American politics, you might think, well, why can it not be? Surely a politician in response to a, a divided electorate and the mixed messages of elections in which you have Trump elected in one year and then two years later you have a democratic victory in the House, surely the response to that should be to pursue a bipartisan path. Because after all, the same opinion surveys which demonstrate the extent of partisan polarization also show large areas of common ground. Even a question like abortion, um, in between people who hold... Um, uh, strong views on either, either extreme, there is a large area of compromising consensus in the middle. But of course, pursuing that path is impossible for the same reasons, or it seems to be impossible for the same reasons that create the problem in the first place. And then there's the impact of the ending of the Cold War. And this, I think, is an often underappreciated element in American political development. Between, uh, let's say, Pearl Harbor um, and the fall of the Berlin Wall, presidents were able to assemble bipartisan coalitions behind their foreign policy agendas. More broadly, they were able to assemble bipartisan coalitions behind their vision of the United States' role in the world. And one way in which they were able to do that was because a majority, a large majority of Americans assumed and accepted a clear relationship between domestic policy and foreign policy. They assumed that America's leadership role in the world as leader of the free world, as the uh, principal exponent of the values of free market capitalism, was benefiting them personally, was creating material prosperity at home. One thing that went wrong with this capacity to create bipartisan coalitions was that beginning in the 1980s, even before, in fact, the collapse of the Soviet Union, more and more people on both the left and on the right began to associate globalization, free markets, uh, free trade, with declining economic security for average Americans. So... This, another way of putting this, well, is that in that extraordinary period for the United States between the end of the Second World War and the sometime in the 1970s, 
the United States was a real economic hegemon of a kind that the world has rarely seen, greater even than Britain was at the height of its economic dominance in the 1850s or 60s. Um, in the 1970s and 80s, with the rise of the Japanese economy and the South Korean economy and Taiwan that began, and West Germany, that began to be challenged. Um, the liberalization of the Chinese economy, of course, has pushed that um, even further with consequences that we're now seeing for American politics. Um, so there'd always been, there had always been voices on the left and on the right who'd made the case that America's openness to the world, its global leadership, was, um, was uh, undermining prosperity at home. But so long as there was a clear and present danger from the Soviet Union, those voices were marginalized. And the bipartisanship, the consensus that resulted, was reassuring to America's allies but also reassuring to, let's say, middle-of-the-road voters who were then more likely to accept the legitimacy of leadership in Washington, even if it was from a party that they had not themselves supported. And so, you know, as late as, I mean, you think since, um, well, since 1992, um, U.S. presidential elections have, and especially since 2000, U.S. presidential elections have all been extremely tight, have all been within a margin of two or three, four percentage points in terms of the popular vote. Before that, it was quite common through the whole period of the, of the Cold War for presidents of, of either parties to win big landslide victories, as Ronald Reagan did in 1984, as Lyndon Johnson did in 1964. That, the path to that kind of consensus building seems almost unimaginable now. The Cold War, in other words, provided clear boundaries to American politics. And with those boundaries gone, the internal fissures have burst open. Well, I began uh, this lecture by talking about the crisis of American democracy. That's the title, How Bad Is It? But we need to be more precise about this because what's really under threat, I think, is not necessarily democracy. I think democracy in itself is not a sufficient description of what's under threat. It's a particular kind of a plural, liberal, democratic polity. In the 20th century, democracy as a concept was conventionally juxtaposed against totalitarian regimes of the left and the right. In the 21st century, that polarity makes less sense. Where once liberal and democratic were reinforcing categories, almost synonyms, now, to be clear, if there is a threat to American democracy, it is a threat that the United States will slip into an authoritarian, light, illiberal form of democracy. Thinking about place as an example, places like Turkey or Hungary, with a kleptocratic, corrupted elite and increasingly corrupted civil institutions, albeit an elite legitimized by elections. Now, if that's the danger, then some historical perspective suggests that probably the United States is due for a regime change 
it has had regime changes or shifts in what political scientists more usually call the political order before. By political order, I mean what I mean is the, the, the constellation of, of rules and institutions, of practices, the tacit assumptions that define how political actors operate and which crucially depend on broad agreement about the boundaries of the political community. The American Constitution may have existed since uh, 17, went into effect in 1789, uh, but the uh, nature of the political order has changed over that time. So in the years immediately after the American Revolution, there was a brief period of rule by silk-stockinged, bewigged elites in which the franchise and the power of electoral politics was deliberately limited. That old order gave way in the early 19th century to a regime defined by vigorous, populist, democratic politics, but which was very sharply defined by race and gender. Only white men could take part. The issue of slavery, which profoundly divided white men in the 1850s, broke the political system and led to civil war. And the amendments, the constitutional amendments passed after the Civil War presented a revolutionary challenge to that whites-only political order. That political order, based on mass parties, survived in a form until a wholly new political order was born in the 20th century with the rise of what's been described as the administrative state or the New Deal order, in which policymaking was increasingly ceded to experts arm's length agencies and as I was saying earlier more recently uh, as in in the last half century to the courts that uh, New Deal order rested on the foundations of a sense of collective responsibility a willingness to trust government to act for the public good and was bolstered by rising living standards and a broad consensus about who Americans were and what their role was in the world all of, their, all of those foundations have now been dismantled. How bad is it? Uh, well, the United States has reinvented itself before. It has survived regime change, a shift of political orders before. Maybe even now it has the capacity, even in the absence of a Soviet-style external threat, to create a shared national project, um, a genuine governing coalition of the kind that has, that, that has existed in the past. It would require civic-mindedness. It would require a willingness to compromise, to see the value in others' points of view. It will not be possible unless a majority feel that once again they're getting a fair deal from the system. Um, I sometimes wonder whether the reason why I became a historian is that when you study the past, um, you have the comfort of knowing what happened, ne what happened next. <laughs> And I wish I knew what the next decades will bring for the United States and for the global order in which it's so tied. I don't know, but what I do think, really, is that we're at a genuine crisis point in the transition from that old New Deal order, which has been crumbling for some time, take a long time to die, but it is now dying. And we're at a critical point in the transition from that to something else. Um, like other critical periods, the 1770s, the 1850s, and the 1930s, we're living at a time 
in which old certainties are crumbled, have crumbled. And I suppose whether that's exciting or alarming depends as much, as my daughter was implying this morning, depends as much on individual temperament as anything else. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.